I've always wanted to do that when people sit in the back. Well, this is our second to the last sermon on Joseph. And uh, if you've been coming this summer and you're like me, I sort of hate to see it over. Um, And a lot of you have given me positive feedback that you've enjoyed these sermons looking at the life of Joseph. I think some of that is because most, if not all of us, have gone through periods in life that we can identify with Joseph, where life has been difficult, when things haven't worked out right. And I think probably all of you, in fact, I'd like to ask you just in your own mind to think of some time in your life when things didn't work out right, at least right away. And maybe there was a time, a long time maybe, when just things weren't right and God didn't fix it. Sometimes we ask for God's help, but those are the hard times, aren't they, when he doesn't fix it. And we have to wrestle with what's he doing? What are we going to do? Why is this going on? A lot has happened to Joseph. We saw his birth how he was the favorite of his father, got an amazing coat of many colors, how he grew up in a pretty unusual house with four mothers, or one mother and three stepmothers, and 11 brothers from three other mothers than his. And even though he had great dreams of ruling over his brothers, those dreams didn't come true, at least not right away, and they hated him, and even sold him into slavery. And then, of course, we saw in the last few weeks how in, sa- in slavery, things seemed to be looking up because Potiphar bought him and he became the administrator of Potiphar's whole estate. And, of course, then Joseph, in righteousness, refused to go to bed with Potiphar's wife and he was thrown back in prison and forgotten for over two years. But that has all changed now because now Joseph is basically in charge of Egypt. Pharaoh had his dreams of the seven healthy cows and the seven scrawny cows and the heads of grain and put Joseph in charge of the entire empire of Egypt. And for seven years, Joseph led a huge effort to store all the extra grain because they knew God had warned them seven years of famine were coming. And Joseph had done all of that, and we're around three years into the famine now. And the system is working. Joseph is slowly selling and giving the food out to Egypt, and they're eating. The problem is, the famine was bigger than just Egypt. It covered the whole area of what we would call the Holy Land. And we find Joseph's family, Jacob and all the 11 other brothers, they're starving to death in Israel. Word travels, and they find out there's food in Egypt. So Joseph sends, uh, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get food, and those brothers, ten of them, went, never dreaming who was running Egypt. And they get to Egypt, and they're just there to buy food when a great shock is coming to them. Joseph plays some games with him. He's still a brother and has to have some fun with his brothers. And they don't recognize him. Of course, 
he would be the furthest from their mind. They are assuming he's long dead as a slave. And Joseph is fully dressed as an Egyptian official, speaks Egyptian. He has married an Egyptian. So they just have no idea it's Joseph. And Joseph does play some games with him for a while, but finally his emotion at being reunited with his brothers overcomes him. And in chapter 45 of Genesis, in verse 3, Joseph finally calls the brothers to him and sends out the Egyptian officials. And he says, I am Joseph, your brother. Is my father still living? Is our father still alive? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I think we would be, wouldn't you be? When it finally dawns on you, I mean, at first it's like, what? He said Joseph. Well, that can't be. And then it slowly dawns on them that it's true. That's Joseph. You know, the brother we tried to kill, the brother we sold into slavery, and he's now running the show. I'm sure their life flashed before them and they thought this is going to be really ugly. And we're going to get paid back for all that we've done. And there's, you probably have had those feelings for your siblings. When they've done stuff to you and you finally get your chance for payback. I, I think we all would say, wouldn't that be what we would have expected from Joseph? But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph doesn't take revenge on his brothers, though we would say he had every right to. He forgives his brothers, and actually next week, that's what we're going to look at as the last sermon in Joseph. The importance of forgiveness. But I think there is another reason that Joseph didn't take revenge on his brothers. He understood something that we all need to learn. And Joseph is a great illustration for us of this principle, this, this way that God works. That there are times in our lives that will come that God will allow when things don't work. When bad things happen to us and God doesn't fix them right away or make them go away. Sometimes God even sends them into our lives. But these things are happening not because God wants to make us suffer, not because he's tormenting us or teasing us, but because they are necessary to bring about a greater good. And to accomplish that greater good, there are times when God needs us to go through a difficult time. Joseph understood that. In chapter 45, verse 5, when the brothers are still terrified that Joseph is going to have them killed, he says to them, now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph understood that being sold into slavery... While his brothers may have meant it for his harm, God allowed it and in fact used it to put Joseph in the very position he was in so that literally hundreds of thousands of lives and eventually the whole nation of Israel would be saved from a seven-year famine. 
If you keep reading in Genesis, once Joseph lets the brothers know who he is, he sends them home and they get Jacob and all of their families and in fact the whole tribe of Israel. And they not only come down to Egypt to survive, but because Joseph is running the country, he gives them some of the best land in the whole empire of Egypt. And Israel is not only saved, but they thrive. And Joseph understands that that's why God did this. That's why he allowed this to happen in my life. And Joseph is fortunate enough to see the good that God is bringing from the bad that came to him. And a few, late, a few years later, after Israel is there, Jacob finally dies. And it's so interesting, you know, Joseph has said to them, hey, everything's fine. And he's helped them set up, and everything seems fine. But if you continue to read in Genesis 50, when Jacob dies, the brothers go into panic again. It's like, oh great, dad's gone. Now he is going to get us. And so they go back into this terror mode because Joseph is finally going to take his revenge now that dad won't see it. And Joseph has to reassure them. And in verse 20, he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I think that's such an important verse for us to hear. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That is a great principle that we need to hold on to. As we face the challenges in our lives, and, and so often we wrestle with the why, or how we could have avoided it, or why is God not fixing it? But sometimes that's not really the question. The question is, God, what are you doing here? What are you trying to bring about? What is your greater plan? And that's what Joseph understood. He got to see that and it finally made sense to him. And I'm sure there were times in prison, there were times in the slave market when it didn't make sense to Joseph. But he trusted God. As we looked a few weeks ago, he trusted that God's plans really are better than our plans and that they won't always be our plans. And it won't always be our timing, but God loves us and is greater for us. That's that reminder of communion every week of how much God loves us. And Joseph saw that at times God needs to lead us into difficult places so that he can accomplish good through us. Now the legitimate question is, is that just for Joseph? Or is that a way that God works? Is that a principle of how God works? Well, I believe it is a principle of how God works, and it's not just true for Joseph. We can see it elsewhere in Scripture, and I believe it works in our lives still today. But to show you that, and I thought since we're sitting outside, stories are a great way to sit outside. I want to look at two other stories from the Bible that we see the same principle that God did in Joseph's life in two other lives. And the first one I want to look at is a young girl. And uh, she would have every right to speak out and say, life treated me unfairly. She is forced into marriage. 
She was a Jew, she was part of Israel, and she was part of Israel when they were enslaved in originally Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered and now they were controlled by the Persians. But they were still, away from Israel, they were captives. They had no rights. And the Persian king, Xerxes, needs a new wife. Because he didn't like the last wife. She's gone. And so they canvass the whole country and take the prettiest women. Didn't ask them, you know. And swept up in all of this is a young Jewish girl named Esther. And she is taken and trained and beautified to be one of Xerxes' wives. And we would all say, if we were Esther or if we were Esther's family, how unfair this is, how wrong this is, how horrible this is. And it was. It was bad, just as Joseph's suffering truly was bad. But then there is an official in that kingdom at that time named Haman, and he hates the Jews. And he conspires with the king and has a little plot going and ends up getting permission to kill all the Jews. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, learns of this plan, and he goes to Esther one night. And he says, Esther, you've got to go talk to the king. Now, there's one problem, and that is in ancient Persia, no one was allowed to go into the presence of the king unless they were invited. No one. Not even his wives. And in fact, the law was very specific that if you went into the emperor's presence uninvited, you were killed. Some of that was security. And so what Mordecai was asking Esther to do was to risk her life and to go in uninvited, to Xerxes' presence, and not only just go into his presence, but somehow convince him to change this whole decree that had been given to kill all the Jews. But there is a famous sentence that Mordecai speaks to Esther when she is legitimately afraid, hesitant to go do this. And Mordecai says to Esther, who knows but that you... Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Esther, how do you know you haven't come to this very place, this very time, through the suffering you've endured, that God brought you to this very point for this moment? And of course, Esther goes. And it really is a great story worth reading. Xerxes allows her in, and very wisely, God guides Esther. And she has some special dinners, and ends up, it's Haman and his followers who are killed, and Israel is rewarded. And God uses Esther in an amazing way through a terrible circumstance. Well, there's one other story I want to tell that shows that same principle. And that is two men that were doomed, and they didn't like where they were. One was the prophet Elisha. And the Arameans had invaded Israel, and they were the mightier army. This should have been a hands-down easy war. The problem was everything the Aramean king tried to do, Israel defeated him. Because Israel always knew the game plan of the Arameans. Now, we would have said somebody has hacked his servers, 
But they didn't have that back then, so the king is going nuts. In fact, he first starts accusing of his own people. Who's the traitor? And they're all afraid of being killed. They said, there's no traitor here. But, but the Jews have this prophet who tells them what you're going to do before you do it. And so the king of, the, uh, of Aram says, well, then find this guy and kill him. That's the only way we can win this war. So they send out a large raiding party to find Elisha and kill him. And they find out, somebody betrays them somehow, that Elisha is in the village of Dothan. And so in the night, the Aramean raiding party comes and surrounds the village. And I, and I love this story. It's in 2 Kings 6. Elisha's servant gets up in the morning, and I don't know if it was to go get bread for breakfast or eggs or whatever, but he gets up first in the morning and is terrified at what he sees. Verse 15, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the entire city. He runs back to Elisha. Elisha, no, what are we going to do? And he knows they've come to kill them. And he knows there are, they have no chance of standing up to this army. But then Elisha says to that servant, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, there had to be, for a brief moment, a thought in that servant's mind, oh, great, the stress is too much. Elisha's lost it. Because for a brief moment, he looks around and he knows who's with them, and he knows Elisha's crazy. Because there is no army with them. And the few people in this village of Dothan don't stand a chance against that army that's out there. But then Elisha prays. And his prayer is this, Open his eyes, Lord, the servant's eyes, who's so terrified. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then God answered that prayer. He opened the servant's eyes, and the servant looked and saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He understood because of being in that spot, in that terrible spot, he was allowed to see the spiritual forces that were with Elijah. Those chariots of fire. And God comes down and blinds the army. And Elisha is saved. And the Arameans go home. They give up. You can't beat God with Elisha. That principle of Joseph was not just for Joseph. God uses it again and again in people's lives. I ask you to think about a time in your life when things were rough. Did God use that time for good in some way? Have you seen that yet? I recounted several weeks ago how I lost my parents. It took me years but now I could sit and tell you at length the things, the good things that have come in my life because of the bad thing of losing both parents. I would say God does that. He did it for me. 
I've seen him do that again and again, and I know you have too. We need reminders of that. We need testimonies of that from people living today who would say, he does that. Weeks ago, I asked you to raise your hand if God had turned good from bad, and numbers of you around the sanctuary raised your hands. We need to see that when we're in the midst of the tough time. Is there a famine in your life right now? Is there a tough time? I don't have all the answers and I can't tell you when God or how God will work. But I can tell you that God loves you and that his ways are better than our ways. And that we need to hold on to him because he may be doing something amazingly good through that very bad thing that you would, we would all vote and say, I pass. I, had Joseph had a vote, he would have said, I pass. Give it to him. He would have picked one of his brothers and said, give it to him. But God said, no, I need to give it to you. Because you're the one I will need. You're the one who will be able to run Egypt. I need to give it to you. Joseph saw after it happened, oh, God, that's what you were doing. And I need you to trust God enough to hang on for that moment when you'll see and understand, oh, God, that's what you were doing. It takes an act of faith. It takes an act of trust. That's why we need reminders. We need worship. We need prayer. We need communion as reminders that God is committed to us. God does love us. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't abandoned us. So we can hold on to his hand as we wait, as we suffer, as difficult things come. We need to prepare ourselves for those so we can wait and let God use us. And that's my prayer for you. That if you're in famine now, that you would hold on to God's hand. He can bring good through even that. Wait and see what God has planned for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us so much. Help us to strengthen our faith so that we don't doubt that. Even when we don't see you fixing things. When you don't spare us from a trial, a tough time, help us rest in your love and wait for your working. We need your help with that. We need your spirit to strengthen us inside. We need other Christians around us to lift us up, to pray for us, to help us through those times. Father, we believe that what you did for Joseph and Israel you want to do today. We see you doing that. We thank you. In your son's name, amen. Well, thank you for coming. Um, I hope the service has been a blessing to you. I would say one thing to end the service, and then I have some directions. Um, if you are in a time of famine right now, I would encourage you to talk to someone about that and uh, let some people pray for you. I think one of the greatest things Satan has done, it seems like in our Minnesota culture, 
is that he somehow convinces us we need to be quiet about our problems and not tell anybody. Whether it's to be tough or for whatever upside-down reason, that is a lie of Satan. And please hear that. Um, and guys, if or the, I was going to say, the, anyway, to the guys in the crowd, that seems to especially be true, but it's not just guys. Um, talk to some folks here. Let some people pray for you and with you if you're in that time of famine. That is the smart thing to do from God's perspective.